came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Jan. I love that phrase at the end of the passage, seeing he believed. Why is it sometimes that we have to see things to believe things? I guess it's just how God made us. I I go for a walk most mornings early and it's still dark. And it's amazing. We live in Coffee Park. It's a subdivision. And you'd think I lived in the wilderness by the things I see, opossums. The other morning I was walking and I had my phone. I listened to the Bible and I was finishing one thing up, starting something else. And I felt eyes on me. I'm on the sidewalk and it's about 530 in the morning. Nobody's out. And I could feel eyes on me. And so I just assumed it was a cat. And so I looked over and, oh, and, and then for about four seconds, it, it felt like 40, but it probably was only four, my mind had to do this whole thing because we've also had skunks in our neighborhood. And so I'm looking at this thing that's definitely not a cat, and my mind's thinking through, is that a skunk? Am I in danger of being sprayed? No, long skinny tail, not a, not a skunk, possum. And then I said out loud, oh, you're an ugly thing. And it, it just looked at me and then like turned and, and kept going and... And the funny thing is I had my phone. I could have taken a video and a picture, right? But it was, I swear it happened. I don't know if you all believe me. Seeing is believing. I saw it. But it's crazy. So we have skunks. We have opossums. We have raccoons that come through the gutter system. Uh, we've looked out of our window, and there's this critter going you know, down the storm drain. And uh, seeing is believing. Crazy, crazy things in, in a subdivision of all places. You that live in the country, you probably have nothing like that. I love this text from the Gospel of John, and it's a, it's a short one. The rest of John 20 goes into Jesus appearing to Thomas and to the others. And uh, of course, in, in Luke, there's a great passage. But we have been in the Gospel of John for the last seven weeks. We have been looking at, as you see on the screen, these different signs. That's John's word. It's, it's the miracles Jesus performed. It's rather the miracles that uh, John recorded for us in his account of the life of Jesus. And John says, we've looked at this every week uh, in John 20, so the chapter you just heard, but a little bit later, that Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples, many others, but the the ones that we've looked at, the seven in particular, um, they, verse 31, have been written, even though there's others that happened, others that were not written, these seven were written so that you may believe. And, And John wrote later than the other accounts. John is looking back, he's an older man, by the time he writes his account of the life of Jesus. So there are people still alive that remember, but there's also people that, that are new to the faith, and he wants them to, to hear and to know and interact with these miracles. And I think he wants those of us coming 2,000 years later that get this to, to, to understand that these signs, these miracles in particular, were written so that we may believe. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, that word believe has been really key to the signs that have occurred. That we may believe what? That God is amazing? Well, yeah, but it's a lot more than that. You see, these signs are not just so that we would go, wow, God can turn water into wine and heal blind people and heal people that are lame and and, uh, raise sick people from near death. And, And like we saw last week, bring Lazarus who had been in the tomb for four days out. No, John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, that he's the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. And then he says that by believing, that this belief, it would cause you to have eternal or have life in his name, to have life. And John, throughout his account, talks about having life and it's eternal life. And it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's not just, well, I said a prayer when I was a little kid somewhere. And so I've got my ticket. I'm safe. To, to believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, to have life in his name is to have life now, to have a taste now of what life will be, yes, one day, but, but life Now, in fact, last week when we were in chapter 11, I called that the ultimate sign that Jesus did, right? The the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was the ultimate sign because it pointed ahead to his own resurrection. And and he said these words, they're on the screen. He said to Lazarus' sister, who of course was grieving that her brother had died. he, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's, it's me, Martha. Whoever believes, there's the word, in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then the flip-flop of that is, and everyone who lives, so this is where eternal life is, is for now while living. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Of course, that doesn't mean we, we won't die in these bodies. These bodies will give out one day, but, but, but life will go on. And and so what an amazing statement he gave to to Martha in light of what he was about to do, that he is the resurrection. He is the life. It's all in him. And so he performed that ultimate sign. He brought Lazarus out. And again, it points ahead to what what happened to him just a week later or so, and ultimately um, points to what will be true of us one day as well if we do believe in him. So then we get to John chapter 20. So if, if the raising of Lazarus was Jesus' ultimate sign, right, while he lived, so this one, right, I'm kind of, kind of implying that this was a sign. I mean, for Jesus to come back to life, yes, 
It was a miraculous event, but he didn't do it to himself. Of course, the Holy Spirit brought him back to life, but we have to look at it. We have to see it, that if raising of Lazarus is the ultimate sign Jesus performed, well, Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate, ultimate sign, not that he performed on himself, but that, that God did. And so what I want to do for just a few minutes today is, is walk through, again, just these first uh, 10 verses, uh, but actually we're going to go back to early in John to pick up some verses that most of us know and, and know well. But let me just highlight in these ev- events uh, that happened early that morning um, some key things. So John writes for us in verse 1 that on the first day of the week, I hadn't ever noticed this, but uh, one of my commentaries pointed out, Jesus always said that he was going to rise on the third day. On the third day, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of, of you know, those that are going to crucify me, and then I will rise on the third day. But when the writers speak of the resurrection, they don't say on the third day after his death. They start to speak of the first day of the week. And we aren't exactly sure why, except maybe it implies there's this whole new thing that has begun. So yes, it's the third day after the resurrection, or how they counted, but it's the first day of the week, which is why Christians typically gather and try to gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day, as a a sign of um, memorializing these events. But on this first day of the week, John tells us that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken from the tomb One pastor writes, how appropriate that Mary Magdalene was the first follower of Jesus to arrive at his tomb on resurrection morning. The light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12, had driven the darkness of seven demons from her soul, Luke chapter 8, 2, and now she came while it was still dark to witness the dawning of the new creation era only like God to do something like that. And we'll, we'll, I'll comment more in a minute, but also only like God for it to be, be a woman. And in fact, there were some other women, the gospel, other writers tell us too, that were there. Because again, in, in those days and times, um, a woman's testimony was not admissible. And so if the disciples of John was going to make up a story, he wouldn't have said that it was women at the tomb. We, we, we don't understand that. Of course, in our day, a woman's testimony is just as strong as a man's testimony. But in first century Judaism, uh, women couldn't testify in court. And so if they were going to make something up, uh, they would have had their heroes, like, like Peter, show up first. But no, it's, it's the women there, and it's Mary. Seven demons had been in her, and she had been healed and freed. And she has to go, has to be there. Of course, she couldn't go on Saturday. It was the Sabbath, and so Jesus died on Friday, and he died about three in the afternoon, Good Friday, we call it, but now you're getting into a couple of hours before sundown, which is the start of the Jewish Sabbath, so they have to get him off the cross into a tomb and and have it done because Sabbath is starting. So from Friday night to Saturday night, there's nothing to be done. And then as Saturday night gives way now to, again, in their timing, the, the first day of the week, uh, the first day starts Saturday night for them. It's dark and it's late and it's probably not safe for a woman to be out heading to graveside. 
but she goes early in the morning. It's almost light, and she's got to be there. She's got to see things. And she she sees that the stone had been taken from the tomb, that is probably rolled away based on the type of tomb. So she ran. You're going to hear running and, and, and ran several times. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's probably John. That seems weird for us, I know, but we don't have time to get into why he said that. She runs to Peter and John's there and says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Again, implying there's some other women with her. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just love that. It's like two brothers racing and one's got to just comment that he got there first. Why did he get there first? Probably scholars tell us that John was younger and uh, able to run a little bit longer, quicker. Verse five, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So that's John. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So, so there's continuity and discontinuity. Keep those words in mind. Continuity, discontinuity. In Jesus' resurrection, what I'm reading, and Lazarus's. So if you recall, when Lazarus came out, right, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he could barely move, and they had to unwrap him and take the cloths off him. Jesus, where the discontinuity comes in, appears to have been able to move through the cloths, just like John is going to record that he's able to go through walls and, and, and appear with the disciples later. So again, what's important, and it's kind of nitpicking, but Lazarus had been dead four days, right? But he hadn't experienced the fullness of resurrection because Jesus hadn't died and risen yet. Uh, so we might think that Lazarus had a resuscitation of sorts, but, but Jesus having died and then having risen and with his resurrected glorified body is able to get out of the linen cloths and then take off the head piece and set it there. And so he's got this, this new resurrected body. I was saying to someone this morning, one day when he comes we will have bodies that are able to do things like that. And, and like some of us probably think, well, that'd be cool. Like, can I push through stuff? Maybe. The point is, though, these bodies that hurt and ache and get sick, that'll be gone. That's a discontinuity. The resurrected body we will get won't suffer those kind of things. And hallelujah, that'll be a great and glorious thing one day. So John stoops and looks in, but he's probably scared. He doesn't go in. Here comes Peter, out of breath, gets there second. He goes in and sees the cloths and the headpiece to the side as if Jesus rose, was able to take off the headpiece and set it there, and then to go about what, what Jesus does. And again, we're not looking at all of that today. Verse eight, then the other disciple 
who had reached the tomb first. John just wants to remind, maybe, maybe he's writing later and just wants Peter to hear that. I don't know, who knows. Ask, that's, add, add that to your list. The other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. There it is. John saw the cloth and believed. And then this phrase comes up. For as yet, verse 9, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Jesus had said it clearly at least three times. That's recorded for us that Jesus spoke very directly that, that he must be handed over and die, and then he would rise. And he spoke that clearly. And then there was other occasions where he, he alluded to all of it. But, but they failed to understand the scriptures. And we, we need to give them a break. You know, we, it, at least I need to give them a break. He said it. Why did he have failed to believe? And, and then it says the scripture. We aren't sure that's a singular word. So it, it's clearly speaking of something related to what we think of as the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, the whole thing is, is John saying that they didn't believe the scripture uh, or, or were there some specific passages in mind? Maybe Psalm 1610, prophesying that uh, Jesus, the body, his bones wouldn't see decay, maybe. Uh, there's other passages. Hosea 6.2 alludes to, again, stuff happening on the third day. It could just be the entire account. And one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible in, in the New Testament, but it's for the whole Bible, is Luke 24. So in, in Luke 24, he goes on to meet with a couple of the disciples uh, on Easter Sunday as they're walking, and he, they, aren't, they don't recognize him. Some of you know the account. It's called the road to Emmaus. And Jesus asks them, what, what, why are you troubled? And they say, are you the only guy in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? And they proceed to tell Jesus what's happened. And then it goes on and, and Jesus essentially explains to them how the scripture, the law of the prophets, it all tells the story and points to him. So it may be back to John verse nine, chapter 20, not that there is a one or two particular proof text prophecies that he has in mind, but the point that the scriptures point, point ahead. We were talking in our home this week um, about, about Passover and how Christians, we, we don't celebrate Passover anymore. And, and that's because uh, when, when the angel passed over the Israelites there in, in uh, the Exodus, early part of Exodus, when the blood was on the doorpost and he passed over, all of that was pointing forward. It was a sign of what would come. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt with this miraculous, uh, of course, the Red Sea, but, but the blood of the Passover lamb, when in the, if the blood was seen, the angel of death passed over, but that pointed to Jesus who would be the one and final Passover lamb. And so all of that is pointing to something greater. So maybe that's simply what John is trying to say, that when he saw, he believed, because at this point, he didn't fully understand the scripture, didn't understand that even though Jesus had been teaching it, it takes time to understand. Just, let's just be honest. Raise, raise your hand if, if it's taken you some time in your life to understand some truths in the Bible. Yeah, right? Some of that's on us just to study, but also the Holy Spirit's work to open our eyes, 
to, to, to illuminate his word. But he saw and he believed. He saw the empty tomb. By implication, the resurrection and believed. Verse 10 says that they went back to their homes. John probably goes to tell Mary, Jesus' mother, what he has seen because from the cross, Jesus asked John to take care of his mother. And so now John's assuming that and it's very possible he, he does that. But they see John especially, specifically, and, and believes. We, we can't go today to this tomb that's empty and see and believe, right? First off, if, if we don't exactly know which tomb now, they did back then, and we'll, we'll, I'll comment on that in a second, but, but there's tombs that give us an idea of what they looked like. But, you know, 2,000 years, there there's, wouldn't be much left anyway. So we, we can't find the tomb and see that it's empty and then say, oh, yep, yeah, he's not here, he's risen. But what, what we have is other sorts of evidence And I just want to mention this to you for a moment. Um, It's good to read those scholars that that present the evidence. Even if you already believe and you're convinced that, yes, Jesus died and then rose and and then, of course, would ascend, if you're already convinced, it's good to read those that that study. Um, And there's a newer book called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. It's by a guy named Neil Shenvey. I, I recommend it to you. And I want to just highlight four lines of evidence that he highlights in his book. And he's drawing from, again, a lot of the traditional apologists that talk about these lines of evidence. So some of you, this is not going to be new to you, but let it just encourage you and remind you. And if you've never thought about the evidence, there is evidence that Jesus wasn't there because he had risen. You see, the resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be. That's why we spoke earlier of it, vindicating Jesus' life and and his death. It it was the confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And it's God's assurance to Christians that they have been forgiven. See, the reality is also this. 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 15, verse 14 through 17, that if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if his body was stolen or if it was just this spiritual idea, if he has not been bodily raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, well, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Christianity is about a literal resurrection of Jesus, not just an idea, not just a spiritual, well, he's alive in our souls and no, if he didn't really raise, then we're meeting for nothing. Not just today, but every day and every week. The resurrection is God's assurance to Christians that they have been forgiven. 
So again, just briefly, four lines um, that, that paint an argument um, for the historicity of the resurrection. And again, I can loan you this book that I'm recommended by, recommending by Neil Shenvey. I've got other resources. You can pick them up too. But number one, Jesus' death and burial. So it is virtually agreed upon. There's virtually unanimity, even amongst those that don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he really did die and really was buried. Uh, it's a matter of historical record, and there's all sorts of um, agnostics and atheists who, again, they don't believe that he's the Son of God, that he gives life and, and eternal life and, and those things. But he lived, he was a Jewish rabbi, and he died and he was buried. One agnostic, Bart Ehrman, writes this, it's hard, to, to, it's hard today to understand just how offensive the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been to most first century Jews. Since no one would have made up the idea of a crucified Messiah, Jesus must really have existed, must really have raised messianic expectations, and must really have been crucified. Another writer says this, the fact that of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Others go on to write similarly, and of course the New Testament uh, again, records it. Um, Jesus died, he was buried. And that's an important part of the argument. He, he really did die. He didn't just disappear. If we accept this, that he did live and die on a cross uh, and, and then was buried, then we do have to get to the second line of evidence, which surrounds, well, then what happened to his body after death? And the reality is the tomb was empty. We just read through John one. 21 to 10, and the other accounts speak of this as well. The New Testament claims that the tomb where Jesus was buried on the third day, on Sunday, following his crucifixion, was empty. And it was a public tomb. It was uh, by a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. People would have known his tomb. Uh, People witnessed where they laid him. Everybody knew where it was, and the tomb was empty empty. I mentioned earlier, as I read through the account, the writers tell us that Mary Magdalene is is there. And then she says, when she runs back, we don't know where his body is, implying there were some other women. And it is just a strong piece of evidence in favor of the historicity of the empty tomb, uh, really being empty, that it was women that discovered it. Um, This doesn't strike us as odd in our day, but again, when it was written, it would have been surprising because of the low status that women had in the first century. But if the early Christians, if they were inventing this, they would have used their heroes as the ones, uh, but they didn't. They told the truth. The discovery was made by witnesses who, who couldn't go to court over what they saw, but, but they were the ones that first saw that it was, in fact, empty. Now, of course, in Matthew's account, we read that um, the tomb is empty and the the Jewish leadership, they they decide that they come up with this idea that Jesus' followers stole the body. Um, Here's the the big point. Even they agreed the tomb was empty. 
So, so they don't believe he rose. They're convinced, well, it's empty because his followers stole the body, and there's this whole debate over, over that. But the point is, Jesus' opponents, they knew where the tomb was, and it happened to be empty on that day. So Jesus died and was buried. The tomb was empty on, on Sunday. The third line of argument, then, for the historicity that he rose has to do with the apostles, the, the belief of the apostles. They started to claim that he has risen. They, John saw and believed. They went and told everyone. And it wasn't just that day that they told everyone, but over a period of days and days and days, that's what they talked about. That's what they proclaimed. And of course, the account of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. And not just at one time, or he did at one time, but it wasn't just on one occasion. He was appearing all over, uh, and there were just people alive that witnessed it. Uh, Neil Shinvey writes of a parallel. Let me, let me read this slowly, so hopefully you, you gather this idea that he says. As a parallel to the apostles talking about what they have seen of Jesus being alive, It's reasonable to infer that the terrorists who destroyed the Twin Towers on 9-11 were sincere. If they were certain that Islam was false, why were they willing to kill themselves and thousands of others? What would they have had to gain? Likewise, we can infer that the apostles were sincere. Like the terrorists on 9-11, they would have had little to gain and a great deal to lose by acting upon a known falsehood. If they were making it up, they would have nothing to gain but a lot to lose. And history tells us that probably all 11 of them died because of their profession that he had risen. They would have had little to gain and a great deal to lose by acting upon a known falsehood. But unlike the terrorists of 9-11, the apostles were in a position to know with complete certainty whether their claims were true. They were claiming to have seen, touched, and conversed with a man who had been executed just days earlier. If they had intentionally invented that claim, they would have known for certain that it was not worth dying for. Right? People do die for things that, that turn out not to be true, but people don't willingly die for something that they know to be a false thing, especially in the way that they would die. So Jesus died and was buried. The tomb was empty. The apostles' message over and over again is that we've seen him, we've touched him, we've interacted with him. And then related to that, number four, you have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. Um, For the Apostle Paul, as we call him, to have become a believer in Jesus, the very one that he is uh, persecuting and arresting Christians as the book of Acts begins and is vehemently opposes as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, He has this experience in Acts on the road to Damascus where he meets Jesus and his life is changed in an instant. And he goes from being a hostile witness to being the writer of most of our New Testament. And, and it's significant. And he recounts how this change led him to be whipped and beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and to go without food and to be near death. 
And again, it was because something changed his life. And it was the risen Lord Jesus that changed his life. Anyone who doubts the resurrection has to come up with a plausible account account and reason for what Paul went through to have such a dramatic conversion. And there's other lines of evidence as well. The point is, we have the ability to see, as in read and study these lines of evidence and other things, to weigh the facts and to, to, to glory in the fact that for 2,000 years, um, this has been the message. The tomb was empty. His body wasn't stolen. They, they didn't mess up where they went, the wrong tomb. But what happened, he rose, and then he met with people, and lives were changed. And the church was born, and here we are, some 2,000 years later, still proclaiming this message. And other churches in town are as well. Seeing and believing. Have you seen the evidence? Have you studied it and do you believe? And so if you're a Christian, I hope you have and you're reminded of some things. And if you haven't, I invite you to to look into it and I'd love to join you in that. I want to end this morning, though, as I said, by going back into the early part of John to verses that you'll know. And I'm going to put them on the screen here. John chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. John 3, in the first part, is the account of Nicodemus uh, wanting to meet with Jesus late at night when people probably wouldn't see him, uh, having a conversation. He was a teacher of God's people and He's, uh, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's a ruler of the Jews, it says. And, and so they have this amazing conversation about being born again. And right at the end, I believe, of, of the account, I actually think the way our Bibles work out in John 3 is that Jesus and Nicodemus, they finish their conversation at, at verse 15. And then at verse 16, the famous verse, that's actually, I believe, John the Apostle commenting on Jesus' talk with Nicodemus. That's not relevant necessarily to the end of the sermon here, but the transition is on the screen. So Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus by saying, whoever believes, there's the word that's all throughout this book, whoever believes in him, that is the son, may have eternal life. And then the commentary, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, there's the meaning of Easter. God sent his son the first time to save, to rescue. God sent his son to rescue. And the rescue plan required his life and his preaching and his perfectly fulfilling the law like we talked about and then dying in our place, but then rising on the third day, on the first day of the week. God sent his son not to condemn. He didn't come the first time to condemn us, but he came to rescue And verse 16, right in the middle, says it was because he loved. He loved the world. 
Do you realize God loves you enough to send his son? He loves me enough to have sent Jesus. He was sent because he loved to rescue, to save. This is what today is about. Yes, there's evidence to study and to know, but but at the end of the day, literally at the end of tonight, when you finish the day and the kids, if you have kids, are in bed and you're winding down or you're, you're getting ready for the week ahead, what is Easter about? Easter is about this. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into this world that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have that eternal life because God sent Jesus not to condemn, but that we would be rescued, that we would be saved. Friends, this this is our God. He's a God who saves. He's a God who rescues. He's a God who loves. He's a God that doesn't sit up in heaven and just kind of, you know, shake his head and roll his eyes at us. That's what I do at myself, at others that don't live the way I think they should. God says, I love you. I sent my son. He died for you. And then he, he rose. The tomb's empty. See and believe. Believe. John would write in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live and be saved and rescued through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, a big word that means the the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you hear the theme that John wrote about in both places? The love of God, because God is a God who saves and rescues. This is what Easter is. At Easter, we, we typically say, and I did it with you already, he is risen and you say... One pastor tweaked that a little bit. I I read this a few years ago to to be this. He is rescue, and you respond, he is rescue indeed. So let's let's try that. He is rescue. He is rescue indeed. Would you stand and, and let me pray? If you want to read more on the meaning of Easter and what it's all about, we have some free books. We gave the kids candy. We've got books for adults. Um, so they're in the back there. It's just a thin little book. I know I said that about another thin little book recently. That was a, that was a harder read. This one isn't a hard, difficult read, I promise. The King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter, I invite you to take one. I invite you to come talk to me if maybe today's the day for you to, to believe and to receive, um, to, to, to give yourself to the one who loves you. Or if you just have questions and you want to talk and you want to meet, or if you want to do some investigating. But the meaning of Easter is that uh, God sent his son to rescue us. We, we are great sinners, but he's an even greater savior. And this is our God, he loves. So let's pray and then let's sing a new song you may have heard on the radio if you listen to Christian music uh, that just celebrates these glorious truths. So please join me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day.
this happy day that we've sung about. Thank you for this day to behold the wondrous mystery of the glorious gospel. We thank you for this day to just ponder these amazing truths. And we thank you that the tomb is empty. We thank you that death has been defeated. We thank you that Jesus is alive, that he, he rose and then after appearing for some, some days, he ascended where now he is our glorious high priest interceding for us on our behalf. Thank you that we, we adore and worship him, the risen one, and thank you that you're still a God who rescues and saves and who loves. Hear this song now, God, as, as a shout of confession and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.